Yo, what's the deal, baby? This your boy, Uncle Luke, formerly of the Two Live Crew. You are listening to Pass It Down with Mike Silver and Natalie Silver. Natalie is the most beautiful young lady in this deal right here. Mike doesn't look so good, even though they're dad and daughter. It's the big show, baby. All right, well, Natalie, this is cool because not only do we have an A-plus guest in Chris Long, but... We're going to get some advice, I think, on our uh, podcast uh, tech difficulties. But um, Chris is um, one of my favorite dudes. He was a star at the University of Virginia. They actually retired his jersey, which is pretty insane. Um, Number two pick in the 2008 draft. Uh, He had a long career. I tried to cover him as much as I could when he was with the Rams, but... They usually weren't good enough for me to hang out that much, which sucked. But then he went to the Patriots and then the Eagles and won back-to-back Super Bowls. It was all over that. He won the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year Award, which is probably the greatest honor uh, I can think of in in football and has just done a lot of incredible work uh, that we can get into. Um, And... Literally played for free one season. So all these people who are like, dude, I love this game so much. I would play for free. He actually did. So, uh, Chris, how are you, man? I'm good. I will say, though, that it wasn't that I, I don't love football that much. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, that was why I did it. Because I was like, man, this shit is kind of getting annoying. Like, maybe I can give my, like, give this year a little bit of extra meaning. It turned out that we had plenty to play for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe you were you were karmically rewarded. Yeah, maybe. Uh, for, you know, giving, you know, trying to get yourself into that I love football zone and then they <laughs> they give you confetti. Exactly. Uh, confetti. I'm actually that's funny. I have uh my confetti right here in my hand in a shadow box on my desk. So Oh, nice. So before we get into actual subjects, um You've done 158 podcast episodes, it looks like, in oh, less really? than a year. The Green Light Podcast. Yeah. yeah. Before we go, wait, wait, wait. Before I just got to interject here because I'm not going to ask you why you titled it that, but I just want to inform you and all of our <laughs> listeners that in college, um, I lived in a big house, a big co-op with like a, over 100 and. 20 people living in it. And every Wednesday we would have a ceremony called green light. And basically um, I'll just say it. The house would provide a bunch of weed and (laughs) everyone would get just completely gone. And the goal of it was to create so much smoke that the uh, smoke alarm would go off and we would have to evacuate and the fire department would have to come. Did that happen? I have a party like that as well. Really? Yeah, I do. But it's one where the fire department comes uh, to my house as an adult and then I, I spin it to tell my kids, hey, look, I brought the fire department to you. Like you didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. Also, you, live, you lived in Berkeley. So wasn't there just a, a haze over that uh, that little town anyways? Yeah. And so like the first week I was there, 
and the smoke alarm went off and everyone erupted into cheer and just pure joy and euphoria. I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and then the truck came by. He knew us like at that point. Um, and he waved and everyone knew what was up. It was like a big old shtick that we did every week. I'm just like the, the, the lead of this story to me is that you lived in a house with 120 people. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. It, by the, <laughs> it by, was great. By the way, my uncle and aunt went to Cal in the early 70s. And my uncle told the story of the fire inspector coming to give the fire talk at one of the eight-story dorms, you know, one of the mm-hmm. units. And uh, during the talk, uh, some people set the elevator on fire. Oh, boy. That's not advisable because that's – Yeah, what, no, that's well, – so that's- Maybe that was a lesson to try to – encourage people to use the stairs which they always say <laughs> yeah, yeah do not do not take the I mean, but that's that's going to an extreme the green light is not it's not about weed surprisingly because it was funny when when i i guess kind of let it slip to dan patrick and people made it seem like it was a a really big deal that i did you know i did i did enjoy uh, the devil's lettuce for much of my career. Well, all of my how dare you? Well, I know. Like <laughs> people just started assuming that everything I have to do has to do with marijuana, and you you started getting these for a while. These tweets that anything I tweeted or anything I, I I content I pushed out was all, oh yeah, but like you're stoned, right? Or like yeah, like you know, like and I was kind of like. Yeah, you know, it's part of my life, but it's not everything I do. And definitely, like, I do a stone mailbag, for sure. I love doing a stone mailbag. That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah, we do talk about, we do talk about, um, we'll actually be doing one later in the week. We do talk about, you know, marijuana and that sort of thing. We're not afraid to go there, but green light for me was more, you know, any topic, you know, kind of, this is, this is kind of, nothing's off limits for the most part. Like, you know, uh, Mike told me things we'd be talking about today and you know i always say like we just talk about whatever we want to talk about you know um and that's the way we kind of are on the pod and um also my favorite color is green i'm sitting in my office here at home and the wall is like obnoxiously green i finished with the eagles we have a lot of philly people uh that listen to the pod and so honestly i just didn't want to call it like fourth and long you know, <laughs> like, you know like, I mean? like we didn't, we didn't want open mic or the silvers, you know, yeah, silver, silver microphone or something like, yeah. you know, it's funny when you, when you start a podcast, I feel like in the football world and I get it. Cause a lot of your fans are just football people. They're like, well, you gotta, it's gotta be some play on words with football. And for me, it's a uh, D lineman, you know, vernacular spun into some clever podcast. And I, I think, just calling it green light. I wanted it ambiguous. I didn't want my name in it. And then also, well, that was much to the disdain of the people managing me. Cause they're like, well, then you're not searchable. I was like, I really don't give a shit. I, I, I just want to put out a pod that doesn't scream. It's just going to be about meathead football stuff. This is, um, this is, this is heartening to us. Cause we don't have our name in it. Um, we like, I feel like the hardest part of podcasting for us has not been the actual conversations. Those have been great, but it's the stress of the technology. And um, like we just had Matt LaFleur on last episode and it was such a good vibe and the content was amazing, but you just couldn't hear it. There was like, it (laughs) it sounded like it took place inside like a 1950s newsroom with typewriters. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So have you struggled with any of the, the tech stuff? 
For sure I have. And, you know, I got a producer who's out in Cali. You know, nowadays everybody works pretty remotely. So uh, shout out to John. He does a great job. And then Reed is my kind of in-house guy who does the editing on the back end and kind of keeps the the machines running and that sort of thing. Because I'm terrible with tech. You guys are talking about technology. I'm literally allergic to it. I bought my son an RC monster truck last week. Three things have been broken on it. I think I got that from my dad who notoriously none of his stuff works. Um, So like imagine me going into a podcast world and I really don't have the patience to tinker with electronics. I try to make my life as simple as possible. We definitely have audio issues. I I told you we do Zoom so that we can, um, you know, pull some socials on the video. But Zoom works really well for the audio, too. And I didn't even know what Zoom was until the pandemic. I mean, whoever whoever's running Zoom is rich at this point. Um, totally. Yeah. And and listen, there's there was some trial and error. I was moving things around in my house because I didn't want to go into the studio. I was trying different rooms. There's echoes in some room. My one-year-old is on the other side of the wall, and I do a lot of my work at night. I'm a night owl. That's a challenge. I mean, like I had Todd Gurley on one time. And he's my guy, but I also know he's very busy. Right. Um, and, you know, like the audio is kind of like, I'm like, are you talking to me inside of a – a glass bottle. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to, my, my buddy took time out of his day. So if it's right. apparent that that's the only option, it's what we got to work with. Now there's also like the scary parts of, I always think I'm wasting somebody's time when I ask them to be in my pod. I also think I'm wasting the listener's time. And that's something I got to get over. There's like, nobody gives a shit what you have to say. Everybody has a podcast. Right. Like those are the voices in my head. You know, I don't like my own voice. I'm like everybody probably that way. No, see, I'm arrogant. Like, I'm more like you probably as a player. Like, when you were at the height of your powers as a player, you were probably like, I will beat this guy and I will maul this quarterback. Like, my arrogance actually allows me to think that everything I say is awesome. Oh, but really? I but I do think I'm wasting your time. Like, that's <laughs> that, – honestly, it's like – you know how to – And mine. All right, I'm going to – actually segue into a serious question, although I could do this endlessly, but I do feel like I'm wasting your time in the back oh, of my mind. Yeah. I, even, I know I'm not, but um, so you're from Charlottesville, mm-hmm. beautiful city, you know, steeped yeah. in history. And obviously, you know, when the, when the stuff went down um, in 2017, um, you know, the whole world was watching it and, there were very fine people on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I know how that impacted us from afar. How, how did that impact you? Um, I already couldn't stand that guy. I, uh, I already had plenty of uh, disdain for the organizations that were present in Seville that day. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been, I've been on this stuff a while, so, it's not like this was new, but it's new when it's, when it's home and it's new when, you know, the street that Heather Heyer got run over on and all those bodies flew in the air, um, is like a street you would walk down with your kid. Like I lived at that point three blocks away Whoa! and you know, but it also doesn't really matter what, what I like me being taken aback and being like, oh, this hit close to home. Like, OK, like if you're black in America, this shit hits home every day. So I I think Charlottesville was. Was looked at 
as an opportunistic location for people to like wage this ideological war um, from that side. And it was because we got these statues and the city was trying to take them down. And I think of Charlottesville as a progressive place. It's not without its its shortcomings, like everywhere in America. Uh, but there's a lot of good people in Charlottesville that, that want to be a part of the solution. And, you know, I, I think it was one of those things that you had some ugly people show up in our city and instead of showing real leadership, the president of the United States, you know, pissed down his leg and he really didn't piss down his leg because he was nervous or like he didn't, he lacked the the gumption. He's just a bad guy. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my car in training camp in Philly in the heat, just sweating my ass off after a practice watching that press conference. And I was fucking enraged. Like I was mad and I was mad for people that were probably looking to a guy that they had no faith in anyways. Um, rightfully so because of what he's already shown. And like in a moment where he might be able to redeem himself way back then and show that he has a backbone and he could be just at least like the rest of the run of run of the mill shitty presidents we've had at different points in our history. Um, it's that on steroids because it's so open and it's so encouraging his base to, you know, parrot him and, <laughs> and, and to empower these really hateful groups. So when I saw that, I was mad, man. It just, it just, it just made me mad. I mean, real mad. So I, I hear you say that, um, like, obviously you were taken aback, but that's nothing compared to, you know, what people of color, especially black people experience on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, I think at least like for me, I'm 24 and I graduated from college recently. And at least like my peer group, we have known about this concept of allyship, but especially this past summer in the wake of, you know, the George Floyd murder and Maude Arbery and Breonna Taylor, I think that um, at least like within my peer group, there's been a new um, like examination of what it means to be an ally. And, you know, you've been at it for a while and it's it's not as simple as it sounds. Um, it's definitely like something that you have to learn and I'm still learning and still educating myself. But can you just talk a little bit about like what your experience has been in the NFL and, and beyond and how you've learned to best support your black teammates and friends? Yeah, I just kind of let, I think, I think one of the, the biggest tragedies in our country is how segregated our country is still. I mean, um, when it comes to like our school systems, our communities, and that's done on purpose. Um, and when you keep people divided, they really like, you know, I think you take away an opportunity to get to know one another and to normalize some really like some, some really I mean, like I play in a lock, I'm in a locker room and a meeting room. We joked about being a WD, a white DN. And the, the running joke is, you know, that I used to say, it was like, the only place in America it's bad to be white is in a D-line room. Okay. <laughs> so like, I just, for me, growing up, 
football gave me an opportunity to normalize being around people that didn't look like me. And, you know, my dad was the same, played the same position as me, slightly different, but the same kind of position. He was in a D-line room and got to know people. He's from South Boston, from, from Charlestown, like the town, you know, uh, real Irish Catholic neighborhood. Football gave him an opportunity to meet people from the minute he showed up at Villanova or played in the blue-gray game down south or entered a locker room full of guys much older than him in, in Oakland with different backgrounds and, and different walks of life and who look different and with different life experiences, like football gave that all to him. So I got that through my childhood and being around his friends and that sort of thing. And, and then football gave it to me again. So I think the biggest, you know, I, I, I never look for credit for doing what just should be, I mean, that should be more normal to like have empathy and just understand people or try to understand people and to, engage in these conversations like that should not like I, I'm uncomfortable with some of the praise I've gotten in that in that right um but to me it just everything starts with empathy and, you know you mentioned allyship you know it's not a word I use a lot I mean I, I get the concept of it I I don't do these things I do these things and say these things because I believe in this stuff um like that's I some people you know arrive at it in different ways. Like I've had a, I've been lucky enough to have a head start and I'm constantly learning and I'm continuing to learn. And I think that's what, what that term to me means is, you know, listen to your friends, hear your friends out and have hard conversations. And I also have a really safe place to have those conversations. A lot of white people don't feel safe having those conversations because they can say the wrong thing. They can fuck up a phrase, uh, you know, they can, they can ask a dumb question. They can, and, sing, they can sing along with one of their favorite songs or rap. Well, I mean, and like, that's totally not advisable. I just like, agree. I, I just think like, and the, the, the crappy thing is most Americans don't have a friend in person that doesn't look like them. I feel like that they can have a conversation with the only place that we're having these conversations right now is on Twitter, which is a hellhole. Right. Um, and, and you cannot engage in safe conversations there. You can't learn safely there. So we've just become this like big online community instead of like an integrated community of real people sharing experiences and observing each other and listening to each other. And make no mistake about it, I say listening to each other. We should be listening one way right now, you know? Um, and... Through that listening and that experience, I think it's totally fair to share your experience and your fears as a white person of like, hey, if I like, how do I ask this question or I, I might not get it. Why don't I get it? Help me out like that really can't be done online right now. And I think that's where we're in a, a tough spot where our country is tragically really segregated. And um, now the medium for discussing this stuff is such a toxic environment. And um I think I've been lucky because I've been in locker rooms where I have a really safe place to have conversations and I've had it and taken it for granted really for most of my life. And so like allyship to me is me just following my heart and it can be tricky too. Cause I've also had people tell me that like at different junctures, you, I don't like what you're doing. That's not allyship. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that, I guess that's, I guess that's going to be too bad. And if that makes me a bad guy, 
I literally followed my heart to gain access into these conversations. If you're going to kick me out because I'm not always on the same page, that can be a tricky tightrope too. So like, I just, I believe I'm convicted in what I, what I believe. I really do keep an open mind with everything. All I do is think about like anything that's going on. Um, and I overthink things and it's almost to my detriment, but I really think that's the only way you can, you can try to learn something. Well, you hit on something that's important and I'm going to ask you to help me say this in a sec. Cause so I grew up in LA, which we were blessed enough to have a mandatory desegregation order. So this is why I'm pro busing, which is, you know, not a popular stand in 2020, but, and I had the best of both worlds. We had kids voluntarily bust into our schools on the West side. So, you know, it's easy for me to say, but, you know, we had fully integrated schools from junior high on. And so, you you know, like when you're around people all the time, none of the stereotypes that you could ever hear, if you were inclined to ever believe them, you know, they're bullshit immediately. Like, it's like, come on, that's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's not, you don't, that's not dogma, that's experience. So when I started covering the NFL, you know, in the late 80s, I, you know, there, there weren't very many reporters of color and I felt like most of the white reporters were older and just weren't as comfortable or comfortable at all talking to African-American players. And, you know, that wasn't hard for me. So I think it, it helped me. And I, I've tried to explain this to people so much. So, you know, when I see people like not just, you know, in a rally on the news, but like in real life, when I see Trump, overt Trump support, I'm like, you know, that like, that's basically at this point saying I'm with racism, you know, at, at best, I, it's not a deal breaker for me or I'm cool with it. Um, and I just like in our world, it's such a hard, I'm not saying there's never been a racist in an NFL locker room. Of course we've got our share, but like, it's just so foreign to our reality that you could even, you know, just yeah i mean it, it is i mean you 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 spoke to it i mean you've had ex life experience that you're lucky enough to have where you know quote unquote differences are normalized and like it, it's not it's just no it's no fucking big deal to be around to me to be around somebody that doesn't look like me and like i think most guys in the nfl would say that we were very lucky to share locker rooms with each other and i think that that goes in every direction because like integration and people coexisting and and you know absorbing the news of the day together at a breakfast table or a lunch table like you know if, if a news network's on and we're in we're in the lunchroom like okay i got one of my best friends right next to me who doesn't look like me and comes from a different place like what does he think about this issue we can talk about it in real time and there's no audience of a million people online sitting here litigating this conversation <laughs> uh ready to judge and ready to clout chase and ready to you know be critical of like even the slightest misstep the problem is that like our forum to have real discussions um well the problem is racism but the problem is for some white people who are trying to to uh immerse themselves in these conversations is especially in the era of covid where you can't see people in person and have these conversations, like 
it's uh, I, I, I think that's the biggest problem in our country is, is, is this, is the very intentional segregation of, of uh, our communities. And that keeps people from working together to dismantle like really ancient, when you talk about Trump being overtly racist, he is, um, and, and Trump being overt in his encouragement of hateful groups and a base that just, you know, is co-signing racism if they're not racist themselves, which is racism at this point. Like our country, our country's history is kind of racism, right? And yeah. there have been plenty of presidents who have been very racist, which I have a gripe with a lot of the people who haven't spoken up until Trump. Um, For sure. But I think the one saving grace, if we can get through this November, and it's not just the racism, it's the it's the ability to exist as a nation and then like and fix some of our problems just to have the opportunity to fix them is what's on the line in November. If we can get through November, I, I keep saying Trump's like a black light in a hotel room, man. Like maybe the last four years, if we can survive them, will have been a blessing because we saw who people really are and now we know who's who and if it's not for this tension where unfortunately there's a pandemic and everybody's cooped up in their houses and they're four years into this roller coaster ride of a presidency with a guy who's on hinge and just doesn't seem to care about America. I mean, you can say America first all you want, but like you're not, you don't care about the people in this country because you're dividing them. Um, you, you're, you're, you're risking our future. Um, if we can get through this November, I think we look back and say, all right, the bandaid was completely ripped off. That's what needed to happen for a long time. And he didn't mean to put us on the path to, to recovery as a nation. But now I think we were forced because we were like sitting ducks with all these stressors that he created to confront these issues. And that's what the summer I think has been about. It's like our generations like reckoning with a lot of stuff that's happened, not just in the last four years, but the last 400. So I think that Trump can be that black light in a hotel room and the people that were the people that were the loudest and most prominent and powerful stains. Uh, we know where they stand as they're trying to weigh in on uh, issues in the future and, you know, assert their power. Yeah, that's that's really um, that's like probably the most uplifting thought I've heard in a while. Which <laughs> no, because it is there's also a pandemic, so all that's on the line. And I'd be afraid to tweet that though. That's the problem. Yeah, but but all that's on the line, and probably the ability to stop the death procession. You know, because if we don't have federal leadership in a strong way, you know, very soon. I, what are we going to do? Herd immunity and, you know, a zillion debt. I mean, it's I just, just, I just think, and he, and he botched the, he botched the whole thing. I mean, you watch, you know, one of these videos that highlights the se sequence of how he's botched this thing. It's unbelievable. Um, I think the well, rest of the actually Jeff, Jeffrey Lurie's just put out a documentary that's coming out now. They just screened it where they, it's right on that exact subject. It's hot. But Let's say, you know, 
some other Republican president because you, you had to know it was coming. I mean, this is a direct response to the discomfort that America feels about having a black president. For sure. I mean, that's all this is. And they make him out to be this like incredibly far left cat. Like, come on. Yeah. Uh, um, if we'd have had just a run of the mill Republican president or Democratic president, because I'm not I'm not political. I'm not somebody who's been like politically inclined my whole life as far as, you know, this party, that party. My I lean way left on everything. OK, I'm a liberal. I don't think the Democratic Party has been has served American people extremely well. Uh, throughout history. I don't think there's been one party that's done it, but there's been one party that's been pretty overt about doing the opposite. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and let's say somebody else had won the election four years ago. Are we still sleepwalking? Yes. Well, well, yes. yes. But I also think like, imagine if Hillary had won and they had done an incredible job on the pandemic and this one's brutal, right? There's no still doubt about be, it. No doubt about there, it. And there's still be 20,000 dead people, you know, something horrible. And can you imagine the, the pearl clutching on the right though? I mean, Benghazi was like, you know, three or four dead, a horrible tragedy. I brought up the swine flu the other night. Right, but imagine if imagine if President like, Hillary Clinton did everything right, or also, or Mitt Romney, whatever, and they did everything right, and twenty thousand Americans died. It would be that's well, that's what I was gonna say. You don't have to be like radically progressive, not which Hillary is not, to you know have strong leadership on this. Like you said, Mitt Romney could do. Yeah, this. it could, it could have been anybody. Mean, it could have been anybody. But I also I also think that we'd be. Because the conversation started about race in this presidency, not right. his mishandling of the pandemic, which has been, I mean, the costs are unbelievable. And they intersect with race as well. I mean, like the pand- there's, there's intersection between implications based on the color of your skin and the outlook in time of a pandemic. I mean, they're, they're intertwined completely. But when you're talking about race in this country, when you're talking about race in this country, um, I really think if we had a Mitt Romney or we had a Hillary Clinton, we would be sleepwalking now. And this guy is such a piece of shit, in my opinion, that he has managed to rip the Band-Aid off the elephant in the room for this country the last 400 years. Uh, Now we're talking about it. And he didn't do it on purpose. He doesn't deserve a pat on the back. I wish nothing good for him. Uh, but hopefully as a country and make no mistake, I really think there's a huge intersection. If you want to think about like America a hundred years from now, if it, if it's even in existence, like I think, I think like our democracy is on life support. And I think, you know, it took us, it took getting here for people to have this conversation. And so what are we going to do with it? That's my only thing is like we could turn it into a positive. If people get out there and vote and we could we could write this ship and we could, you know, kind of be inspired like in a, in a football game. I hate the football analogy. Something goes really bad and it wakes people up. Hmm. You know, your, your team might have been making the wrong plays all season long and just getting away with it. Um, and then you have your just dog shit game and people wake up and there's yelling and there's arguments and there's there's pain. And hopefully that's what like if we get out and vote, I mean we we could we we could we could fix this thing, you know? 
I, I really believe that. But like, there's no we could fix this thing if he wins again. Yeah. yeah. Um, we had uh, we had Dante Stallworth on a few episodes ago, and I asked him this, and I'll, I'll ask you too. It's just you know now it's just so hard for me to imagine in an NFL locker room open Trump support not being an awkward thing if you're a leader. And, you know, we've seen like Jack Del Rio's tweets, but, you know, you played for maybe the greatest coach of all time or one of them and Bill Belichick. Um, he wrote a letter the night before the 2016 election that Trump read at a rally in New Hampshire saying, make America great again. I hope you win, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's got incredible credibility because of his, you know, incredible achievements. But do you think we're at a point where, in an NFL locker room now, like overtly supporting this makes it awkward. Yeah, I think there's an awkwardness if you're supporting. I mean, to me, it was awkward in 16 if you were, because I'm like, you just don't see it, do you? Or like, right. you know, like for me, I knew during the debates that I would never, you know, during debates, I was never thinking about him becoming president. A, I was like, this sure. can't be this. Like, even in this country, it can't be real. Uh, and then it happened, and I was in New England, and obviously I'd been in um, St. Louis my whole career, so the thought of visiting the White House with a championship was never like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck, it was a total afterthought. But I said, like, as soon as he got elected, because guys were talking about, like, hey, you know, you, when you win, you go to the White House, because it was obvious I hated him. And... I was like, I'm not going to the fucking White House to see this guy. <laughs> you repeatoed. Yeah, you repeatoed. <laughs> like, I'm just not doing it. Um, and that was 2016. So that was right in the beginning. And we had a couple guys say that. And I just think at that point, it was one of those things where, in my mind, I was like, you can believe whatever you want to believe. I believe what I believe. And there's no way you're getting me on a plane to go see this guy. Like right. you can talk about the office or the white house. I go take a tour with my kids one day, yeah. like a paid tour. Yeah. Um, then in 2020 or 2017, sorry, it was a year later. Uh, we won in Philly and we tried to make sure I tried to make sure and guys tried to make sure. And we did that. Listen, there's going to be some guys that aren't going to go. We have a major like kind of, social justice presence in this locker room, whatever. Um, it's clear we got some people that don't like Trump. If you want to go, go. You know, like, yeah, there, there are people that do see it as just a visit to the White House in 16 or 17. That's not how I see it. You know, to me, it's, it's in, in a time like this, I didn't see it that way. You know, maybe with some other presidents, I would have... I would have bit the bullet and gone um, because I don't think highly of many of them. Uh, but this guy, no question. I'm not being in a picture with him. I'm not saying shit to this person. So we, we did though at the same time, try to encourage people to exercise their rights as Americans and world champions to go to the white house. And we were going to go, there were going to be some people that were going to go, but I think he like threw a fit and canceled it. Yeah. Like he canceled the White House visit. So he's yeah. just so sensitive. <laughs> I mean, like, and his base is sensitive. Like, I know. I, I like, I, I just, I got so much. I don't even want to give 
him this or them that much attention because there was a point after this whole thing where I kind of made a pact with myself. I wasn't going to give him so much attention. So I've already done it too much on this pod. Uh, because I, I think for four years we've at every turn we've, and we should keep the heat on him, but just tweeting into a void. I'm done with it. I'm done with, I'm done with it. Every turn. Oh, we got him now. Right. Go vote him out. Let's go vote him out. Like that, that's the only way. And even then you got to be afraid because there's voter suppression. Okay. Like in Virginia here, we had the last day of registration here the other day, we had a fiber wire cut and the website went down. Yeah. Just an accident. On the day of early voting in Georgia, I think a woman in Cobb County waited like eight, 10 hours in line. Okay. Like there was a governor in Texas that's stripping uh, drop boxes. So like one drop box a county. There's one county that's got 2.4 million people. One drop box. Okay. The president's telling his supporters to monitor the polls. And his supporters are like militia dudes and the dudes who are trying to kidnap government officials. So in the Cali Republicans just basically admitted fraud. It's like, here's how we win. We go vote them out. And we, we report, you know, voter suppression and just know that probably not every vote's going to get counted. But if everybody goes out in full force and 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 cast their vote, I think we got a shot here. And this fall is like it's life or death, man. It just it just is what it is, as I, I believe, for the soul of our country. We are the 2017 Eagles and he is the Chris Long era Rams. So, <laughs> so we're going to win, but we can't win. 21 to 16 we have to win like 38 to 13 and and then they might still not accept the result and not agree to let it be a loss and say no we're counting we're taking the w in the standings but even to get to that point it can't be close because of all the shady you know suppression and potential fraud and everything else and i get some people are not extremely uh moved by the democratic ticket I mean, like, okay, I'll, we can, I'm going to listen. I, I'm not inherently political by that. I mean, like, I don't, I'm not like a party fanboy. I'm a liberal, but I'm not a party fanboy. Okay. I, the minute God willing, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris take office, I will be complaining about what they do because that's my right as an American. I would do it to any president. You should hold them all accountable. And you might not be crazy about the ticket, but get your ass out there and vote. Like literally, if you don't vote to prove yourself, your little to throw your little fit or prove a point, you're voting for Trump. Right. I, like, yeah. I don't care how like over it you are. Like fucking vote, dude. I like I and and the best analogy I heard was you're on a flight for like 40 hours. There's one meal cart. It's coming through at like hour 30. You're starving. They stop in the aisle and they give you two options. Um, There's a piece of poop on a plate and there's a dry chicken sandwich. And you stop to ask how the chicken's cooked. (laughs) That's what you're doing if you throw your little hissy fit this fall and don't vote. I'm sorry. Like you have a right to do whatever you want to do. But if you don't vote this fall, I'm judging you. It's an entitlement to say this is not the perfect. I mean, listen, man, I've spent my whole life not voting for the candidate who's far enough to the left for me. 
but I still suck it up and, you know, pick, pick the one of the two that I think will do the better job for me. I mean, I was worried about a lot of like my peers, but I think that everyone's on the same page. Do you think that some of the people you knew who sat out 16 because they were pissed that Bernie lost? I think so. I also think like, like I voted for Bernie in 16 um, in the primaries, like all of my friends did. And I also didn't think that Trump could win at all. I didn't even think yeah, it was in the realm I did of possibility. A job of preparing you. And I didn't vote for Biden in the primaries, but um, yeah, I don't know. I I am I feeling for, better about it than I, I voted for Jesse Jackson in the nineteen eighty four primaries. My my dad voted for Shirley Chisholm in nineteen seventy two. What's up? <laughs> this is a different level of like jarring, which is again, this is the point. Like things are bad here right now. And they're visibly bad, but they've always been bad for a lot of people in our country. So now's the time if you want any hope of like rectifying the situation, like to, to get on rectifying it. And I, I don't think with, without this awful president, who's the worst in the history of a long line of like imperfect leaders in our country, I, I, I think the, the only saving grace is if we rally to the polls we can fix we can fix some of our issues like we've never done before because the wound is like exposed now the band-aid is ripped off so like let's go get it man like i don't i don't know what else we could say you know god i i actually think you you probably never want to do this but i actually think if you decide to coach any sport on any level you'll be a really good motivator cuz i <laughs> I'm like I'm literally like I want to go drop it in the box right now. Let's go. My my motivating days are over. So, <laughs> well, you got kids, so we'll see. The sports dad thing—that's a whole other conversation we're gonna have to have. It is the it is the greatest joy, but it makes you. I, I said TV turns you into a crazy person. Just wait, uh, just sure. wait till you experience it. It's the best, though. Um, no, it, it, like listen, I. My, my sports dad um, stuff right now is trying to get my son to watch games and sit still with me. It's like, <laughs> and he's, he's four? Yeah, he's four. We were watching <laughs> basketball, and the guy with the tattoos on the Celtics, he asked me if that was me. I was like, dude, this is live TV. My dad, dad plays football. Dad, dad doesn't just play, like, all the pro sports. And this game's happening right now. And also, I mean, nothing against the Tice guy, but I think I'm a little better looking. Yeah, I I think you're okay. I mean, uh, you should you should start him on Grandpa's film and then go from there. That's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I was watching some of Grandpa's film the other day. I just got I got bored sitting around the house. Well, it was nap time, which I get from time to time, which is awesome. I watch the be- the best. Um, and I was watching my dad's 1991, maybe, AFC Championship against the Bills. Nice. On YouTube. And I love watching retro games. I just – it's one of my favorite things. And I don't watch my dad enough. So it was just – like, it's fun. It's really fun to see him doing that stuff and watching him and, like, thinking about what's he thinking on this play. I was just doing this, you know. <laughs> like, and he's so much less crazy and so much calmer – and so much less like wired than he was when he played because that's what football does to you. It's just funny to see him in that frenzied state that I was in just a, a minute ago, the last decade and knowing how uncomfortable it is. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall and watch my dad in real time 
go through the same routines I just did. Totally. I mean, I'm glad that I got to cover him toward the end, you know, the latter part of his career. And, you know, those Raiders, I mean, growing up with those Raider teams with those, you know, those yeah, misfits yeah. and outlaws and, you know, nice. it just, it was just. Super yeah, the guy that was making me peanut butter sandwiches wasn't always that nice. You know, <laughs> it's just when you watch your dad, and I'm sure it's going to be like when my kids watch me and they see me get ejected from a game or throwing a punch or like getting after somebody after a play or even like just violently like running into people, the car accidents every play. It's weird when you're watching your dad. And so in turn, I can only imagine watching my kids if it ever happens. Think how much your mom has experienced between oh. that and then two sons in the NFL. I mean, that's a yeah. it's a lot of intensity in games. A lot of travel, too. I mean, like, she used to go to Oregon to watch Kyle's game. And, of course, they were, like, Pac-12 after dark. And then right. get on the red eye and fly into Lambert in St. Louis, which you know is not, like, the – the most luxurious airport. Yeah, um, and, w- and once TWA got swallowed up, it was yeah, never it was the same. Chris, this so. is this is a question that someone that my dad wishes someone would ask me. But um, how did you deal with your dad's celebrity? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah. His, his, his dad's actually famous. <laughs> hey, Natalie, off the top rope. Uh, it's amazing. Holding <laughs> this for a second generation athlete. Uh, yeah, no, and it landed really well. I like that. <laughs> so I, I think, I, I think um, you know, it, it gives you access to, to certain knowledge that you might not have otherwise. But at the end of the day, what it really does is it makes you tougher because people are always going to question your accomplishments. Um, and you have a target on your back. Like in high school, I'd go play an away game and people would be chanting about my dad or about – you know, me. And so like, and I'm a 16 year old kid. So I've been building that suit of armor for now 20 years. Um, and I think that served me well in the league because your dad played, you're a high pick. People are always going to, there's jealousy in the NFL. There's people say, don't pocket watch. NFL players are people just like everybody else. And jealousy is one of the most prominent human emotions uh and when your dad played and people are like well that's the only reason like when i was in high school um i remember i got an offer to go to the university of virginia i was told that i got an offer only because of my dad you know (laughs) when i played at virginia i was just playing because of my dad okay then i have 14 sacks in the acc get drafted second overall just kids of my dad (laughs) 13 sacks in the nfl new contract this guy's a bum. You know, like you can't say it's because you dad anymore, but just people don't like nepotism or what they perceive to be nepotism. And yeah. nepotism doesn't exist on an NFL field. It is literally a production business. And it's about how old you are, how much money you make, that sort of thing. Like where was nepotism where I couldn't get the snaps I wanted in Philly at the end of my career, although I was one of the most productive guys there. Like, that's the, the journey of having a famous dad in the NFL. And to me, it just made me – it made me kind of an asshole in a good way. Like I was really – you have to be a little bit cynical to be a good football player. And I was given cynicism right off the bat with that whole experience. 
I feel like if, uh, you know, as Waylon and Luke grow up, if, if they need any tips on stuff like this that they can't get from you, have them call Natalie because yeah, Natalie she's seasoned. Natalie will know. But it, <laughs> it's funny because we talk about nepotism and coaching, which is a real thing. Oh, yeah. And fans don't understand because, like, when we talk about, like, the Rooney rule or I talk about, you know – hey, there's some great second-generation football coaches in the NFL, and this is one of the hardest things. Like, there's some guys who are very good coaches, okay? Kyle Shanahan was around for a while and put his work in. I think Mike actually made a point to say, hey, like, you can't – I'm not going to get you hired. you got to go, and then you can become a head coach. I think it was something like that. Yeah. Um, and, like, the same – Kevin Stefanski doesn't have a famous dad, but it's, again, like some young coaches – get a bad rap because they're young and successful. Kevin Stefanski was one of the first guys. I mean, he, he was the, the original coach when you look at that staff before left left in Minnesota. He was there longer than anybody on staff. So I think one of the hardest things for some of these coaches who have dads who coach is they get great access. And nobody's complaining about, you know, that access. What they're complaining about is other people don't get that access. Right. Well, I, you know, and – it's funny because when I talk about this stuff with, with nepotism and coaching, everybody's like, how are you talking about the Rooney rule and nepotism and, and coaching? Your dad was a, was a, um, was a hall of famer. I'm like, do you not know how this shit works? Like, again, it goes back to the last point by, by virtue of that rule you're setting, where are all the second generation kids? Like there should automatically be one, right. For every right. pro football player, like one should go pro. And so I think, you know, that's the people, the thing people have a hard time grasping um, when it comes to when it comes to playing and your dad played. Well, we've now wasted 73 minutes of Chris's time, (laughs) but you know how you know how it feels like we've we've established that it's not necessarily rational, but we all no, 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 I'm good. But we do we do appreciate you a lot. And um yeah, this is um, – I feel like uh, we need to have a conversation like, you know, next spring and hopefully some of this stuff we're all hoping will happen is starting to happen. Maybe there will be some gun laws and maybe there will be some, you know, some cleanup of some of this stuff and maybe we can, you know, get after climate change and, and the things that your guys' generation is going to – But we really got to survive first, you know. That's like – yeah. That's the all, you know, we just got to survive and then we can get, we can try to scratch and claw at the other stuff, but I just get, yeah, get out and vote, man. I don't like, I don't. Yeah. We got to have a democracy. We got to have rules that are upheld and stuff. So yeah. I mean, and maybe, maybe better than ever because uh, we haven't had a great track record through the country's history. And so hopefully we, we, we start over a little bit and we can still be proud of each other. I think like we can still be proud to live here. I love, I love my country. I, I love my country because of the people living in it. I, you know, I'm not like some big nationalistic person. Let's clean up the bullshit. Yeah, totally. 